When you ask people to reflect on their ordinary inner experience, the kind of stuff that's going on when you're walking to work, lying in the bath, chopping vegetables in the kitchen, people often say their heads are full of words. There's this ongoing stream of language, this internal conversation that seems to accompany much of their waking life. And I'm interested in this phenomenon. We call it inner speech. I'm interested in where it comes from. I'm interested in what it does, what functions it serves. And I'm interested in what it's like to have this stuff going on in your head all the time. My name is Charles Fernyhoe. I am a professor of psychology at Durham University, and I'm director of Hearing the Voice. One of the most important theories of inner speech comes from the Russian psychologist Lev Vygotsky, who was working in the 1920s and 30s. And he argued that inner speech has quite a sort of simple origin. It starts off as the sort of social speech, the dialogues that we have with other people, particularly when we're developing as children. So that social conversation then gets transformed into something the child can do for herself. This is the stage we call private speech. And if you ever come across a small child playing by themselves, you'll often find that they're talking to themselves as they are doing their thing. So from the stage of private speech, then, this turns into inner speech. So the conversation that's going on externally gradually becomes completely internalised. So it's going on silently in the head. The way that people have been asking the question, what is inner speech for? Why do we do it? Why is this stuff going on all the time in our heads? Vygotsky's theory was quite clear. He thought that children start talking to themselves because it helps them to plan what they're doing. It helps them to regulate their behaviour. It helps them to evaluate what they've done. I think inner speech has other functions as well. It has some really important emotional functions. It's a way of expressing emotions, of regulating emotions, of geeing oneself up for action, encouraging oneself, but also for telling oneself off. My name is Ben Alderson Day. I'm a research fellow in psychology, and I'm interested in understanding unusual experiences in everyday contexts, people's experience of inner speech or self-talk, and how that might relate to the experience of hearing voices. Many people assume that voice hearing only occurs in schizophrenia or more generally psychosis, but actually there are some people who hear voices regularly, almost as regularly as people who receive a schizophrenia diagnosis, but they don't need to access mental health services, they don't need help with those voices, and sometimes they get called non-clinical voice hearers. People who hear voices have many different explanations for why they occur. For some people, they might be explicitly spiritual experiences, so they might consider their voices to be beings from another realm or dimension. For some people, the voices are the spirits of those who have passed on, and it's very common for voices to occur in response to a bereavement, for example. Um, for some people, their voices have maybe been around since a very young age, they're almost a bit more like an imaginary companion or a guide, a confidant that they can talk to in times of need. And uh, people might not know where they come from, but they're very close and very intimate in the way they're experienced. It's hard to say how many people regularly hear voices. Sometimes you'll see statistics of between 5 to 15% of people having some experience of hearing voices that other people can't hear. We think, though, that people who regularly hear voices but don't access mental health services are more likely to be around 1-2% to of the population. My name is Peter Mosley. 
I'm a cognitive neuroscientist working at Durham University, and I specialize in understanding what's going on in the brain when someone hears a voice. Over the past 20 years, quite a lot of MRI studies have looked at areas of the brain that are active when someone hears a voice. And they've done this both in people with a clinical diagnosis, for example, a diagnosis of schizophrenia, and in people with no psychiatric diagnosis at all. When you put someone in the scanner while they're hearing a voice, what you tend to find is that the areas of the brain typically engaged in speech and language processing become activated. That's really interesting. It might seem obvious because they are hearing a voice, but actually what you often find is that areas of the brain to do with producing speech are often active. That's interesting because it tells us that cognitive and psychological processes to do with producing speech, such as using inner speech, might be linked to the experience of hearing a voice. And actually, in both groups, the similar areas of the brain are active. And this is interesting because it tells us that there's not a sharp divide between people with a clinical diagnosis and without a clinical diagnosis, and that actually voice hearing may occur on a spectrum of experience. So the overall aim of this kind of research is really to understand how we can better help people who experience voices but find them distressing. One example might be that the people who hear voices and don't find them problematic, if one thing they're able to do is to switch in and out of engagement with those voices when they want to, that might be a skill that we could try and learn about and help people who have problematic voices try to develop. Now, when we turn to people, say, who receive a diagnosis of schizophrenia or have problems with um, really kind of distressing or upsetting voices, it might be possible to actually um, train those skills to actually manage voices in a more controlled way if that's what they're seeking to do. For some people, what they'll be wanting to do is engage with voices in a different way, change their relationship to the voice. One neuroscientific technique is known as TMS, which stands for transcranial magnetic stimulation. And with TMS, what we can do is very temporarily interrupt processing in an area of the brain, or we can transiently, temporarily increase or decrease excitability in a brain area. Why is this important in voice hearing? Well, if we repeatedly stimulate with TMS over several days, you tend to find that the brain area stimulated will remain slightly less excitable for a period of weeks or even months. So some people have speculated that this could be used as a treatment for neurological or psychiatric disorders, and preliminary studies show that actually this may be helpful for people that are distressed by the voices, and stimulating an area of the temporal lobe that we think is important in voice hearing can actually lead to a decrease in the frequency of voice hearing. Of course, this isn't for everyone. TMS, while a completely safe and technically non-invasive technique, is mainly aimed at decreasing the frequency of voices. Obviously, not everyone wants to decrease the frequency of the voices. And so, as neuroscientists, what we really want to do is just try to increase the available treatment options for people that do want to decrease the frequency of their voices. The inner speech model of hearing voices has been very powerful. It's had a lot of support from experiments in psychology, but also neuroscientific studies. But there must be much more to hearing voices than just inner speech. Many voice hearers reject this model. They think it just doesn't account for their experience. 
And we're pretty sure that other important factors like memory, particularly memory for traumatic events, which is strongly associated with hearing voices, must come into play in some way. I'm Sam Wilkinson. I'm trained in philosophy, but I've been working on the intersection of philosophy and cognitive science. On the standard account of how people think the brain works, when you see stuff around you, what enables you to do that is that light hits your retina and gets passed up the optic nerve and into visual cortex and up into other parts of the brain until you've got something like a conscious visual experience. And so according to an alternative account that I've been looking into, which is called the predictive processing framework, the brain is a prediction machine and it stays one step ahead of the game. So any incoming information is actually already greeted by a prediction that your brain has already formed. Now, you might think, well, where does that prediction come from, right, if it, if it is, as it were, second-guessing what's coming in? And the answer is past experience, right? So your brain, in a sense, reaches back into the past as a way of second-guessing the future. I guess one of the things that this shows us more generally is that when we look at cases of people who regularly hear voices, whereas the standard account would view what's going on with them as radically different from what's going on with the rest of us, the predictive processing framework sees it as very, very similar to what we're doing. In fact, according to the predictive processing framework, we're sort of constantly hallucinating. Perception is a kind of controlled hallucination. So here's a nice illustration of how the information that is coming in doesn't determine what you actually hear. So if you listen to this and try to hear what the clip is saying, so it's a form of speech, it's called sine wave speech, and it's a form of speech that's been played around with so as to make it very hard to hear. So what the clip is actually saying is, the clown had a funny face. When you listen back a second time, you should be able to hear that very clearly. Even though the sound waves that are hitting your eardrum are exactly the same. The clown had a funny face. So this is predictive processing in action, so to speak, because what your brain is doing is it's using the knowledge that I've given you by telling you what it's actually saying and forming a more accurate prediction of what is happening. We've just finished a study with people who hear voices but don't find them distressing, non-clinical voice hearers, where we've been testing what happens when they listen to this kind of sound wave speech, particularly before we tell them that there's speech there. We thought there might be differences in how they react once we tell them there's speech there. We thought they might gear up their expectations and predictions and they'd be good at pulling speech out of those environments. In fact, what we found is we didn't even need to tell them that there was speech there. Many of them noticed right from the start and we saw differences in their brain responses to that kind of speech as well. And for us, that's pretty good evidence that what's happening, at least for people um, who hear voices and don't find them distressing, is that they're very good at using their predictions about speech and language to pull out meaningful patterns from their environment. And that might relate to their ability to hear voices that other people can't hear as well. So the difference between a voice hearer and a non-voice hearer is actually very, very minimal. And that in turn opens the way for a distinction between clinical and non-clinical voice hearing. 
in a way that, that the psychiatric profession has tended to be relatively blind to. So if you think of the fact that you hear voices at all as something that is abnormal and pathological, then there's something contradictory about the very idea of a non-clinical voice hearer. Whereas, thanks to the predictive processing framework, we can see voice hearing as part of normal cognition. And so, where you would draw the line between the non-clinical and the clinical voice hearer would not be in terms of how abnormal what is going on in their brain is. Where you would rather draw the line is how much distress the voice hearing experience causes, how much it interferes with daily functioning, with daily flourishing. And so it really allows for the notion of a non-clinical voice hearer, of somebody who hears voices, who's making sense of their voices, and who's perfectly happy with being a voice hearer.